The following sermon was delivered by Executive Pastor Charlene Han Powell during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Han Powell. A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. Hear now the word of God. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, I stand before you today, yes, as one of your pastors, but most importantly, as a member of this sacred community. Over the years, we have shared meals and stories. We have laughed and cried, sung and prayed. Together, we have celebrated life and mourned death. We belong to one another. And that very belonging has enabled us to endure hardship, to speak truth in love, and to become better than we would have been on our own. Today is no exception. At our best, we acknowledge that we are in this together, no matter how different our backgrounds might be and how varied our experiences are. And it is precisely because of that diversity of community that we are able to grow as individuals, to see beyond our own limited perspectives and to experience God in ways unimaginable. Now, obviously, I wouldn't be saying all of this if everything was just fine but we know that's not true. Our country is divided, our communities are fractured, and our hearts are broken. 
It's like we are all in the midst of a battle where we see each other as either in or out, right or wrong, a sinner or a saint. We are losing the ability to be in relationship with those who do not see the world exactly like we do. Now, don't get me wrong. There are lines to be drawn, wrongs to make right, and sins, so many sins to confess. But our best and only shot at emerging from this better than we were before is by learning from, listening to, and giving grace to one another. Each and every one of us vowing to be honest with God and with ourselves and then with each other. That is the way of our faith. That is the way of the church. I'll start. Over the past two weeks, like drinking water from a fire hose, I have consumed information from the news, commentary on social media, and education from anyone willing to teach. I watched, I read, I listened, and I found that the more I consumed, the more paralyzed I felt by guilt, grief, anger, sorrow, and more. I watched as the conversation turned from one man's tragic death to police brutality, to the merits of protesting, to the evils of looting, to the possibility of a military state. And while all of those conversations are pressing and important, today we are going to talk about what is most pressing and most important. Today we are going to talk about racism. While writing this sermon, I had to lean on the support and wisdom of my colleagues and friends. I told them I don't know what to say. I don't have the words. They encouraged me to be honest and tell the truth. Now I have to confess that on the topic of race, I haven't always done that very well. But that cycle for me ends today. In the beginning of March, when the coronavirus began to spread in New York City, I stopped taking the subway. I told others, and at times even myself, that I was doing this to prevent getting sick. But the real reason was that I was terrified of being out in the world and opening myself up to the possibility of being spit on, yelled at, even attacked over the belief that, as an Asian person, I was responsible for this pandemic. A few years back, when I shared with a loved one that I was uneasy about and even scared by the growing white nationalistic rhetoric in our country, the response I received was first, genuine confusion, and then second, what was meant to be a word of comfort. She said, Charlene, I don't see you as different. I don't see the color of your skin. Friends, look at me now and see the color of my skin. Then see the color of your skin. Then see the color of Ahmaud Arbery's skin, Breonna Taylor's skin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, Maya Hall, and Dante Parker's skin. Look and see the color of George Floyd's skin. Look and see the world that we are living in right now, not the world we want to think we are living in, not the world we hope to live in, not the world that is convenient for us to live in. See the world we are actually living in and have been living in for far too long, a world plagued by injustice, inequality, and yes, racism. For whatever infrequent and quite frankly minor fears I have had in my life as an Asian American woman pale in comparison to the fears that our black brothers and sisters live with every single day. 
a fear that demands that black parents teach their young children to put their hands above their heads when they encounter a police officer. A fear of being profiled by strangers on the subway, perceived as a threat in stores and criminalized while bird watching in a park. A fear realized and memorialized in the unheeded cries of an innocent black man handcuffed on the ground with a police officer's knee pressing on his neck for nearly nine minutes, even as he gasped, I can't breathe. In light of all of this, my friends, we need to ask ourselves some challenging questions. Questions that will be difficult to ask and even harder to answer. But we cannot and will not be afraid of the truth. We will do this together. We will do this as a church. Question one, does America have a race problem? Now, some might argue that racism died with slavery or segregation. Some might even say that our country, by its very laws, regards all races equally. Some might say that we, what we are seeing on the news are isolated incidents, and that in 2020, all lives matter the exact same amount. And yet, despite making up just 13% of our nation's population, black Americans make up 52% of our homeless population. At 27%, black Americans have the highest poverty rate of any race, a figure that is only growing by the second. 46% of black children under the age of six live in poverty. Right now in New York City, in our city, black and brown Americans are dying of COVID-19 at a rate twice that of whites and Asians. And in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, the police have used force against black people seven times the rate of white people. Does our country have a race problem? Yes, we do. But it's not just a race problem. Let's call it what it is. It's called racism. And on top of that, systemic racism. You see, when the system benefits one race or even a few races more than another, when the system serves one race or even a few races better than another, when the system regards one race or even a few races more highly than another, whether it is explicit or implicit, written or just known, that is called systemic racism. And it is a problem that we as a society and as a country have let continue and fester and plague us for far too long. But this problem isn't just for our government and our institutions and our systems to figure out and solve. Which leads me to my second question, do I have a race problem? Back in April, when I read how our current pandemic was disproportionately impacting communities of color, I thought to myself, I should speak about this in worship. I should name this problem. I should lift up my voice. But then I paused. I paused. I asked myself, what if it makes people uncomfortable? What would I even say? Would it even make a difference? And my pause turned to paralysis, my paralysis into fear, my fear into silence. That is a problem. I have a race problem. School teacher, activist, and educator Jane Elliott once asked an auditorium full of white people if you, as a white person, would be happy to receive the same treatment that our black citizens do in this society, please stand. 
Stillness fell over the room. You didn't understand the directions, she continued. If you white folks want to be treated the way blacks are in this society, stand. Nobody is standing here. That says very plainly that you know what's happening. You know you don't want it for you. Now, I want to know why you are so willing to accept it or to allow it to happen for others. In Scott's email to the congregation this past week, he referred to racism as America's original sin. A sin that I believe is so deeply tied to humanity's original sin that we see throughout Scripture, from Eden to Babylon to Calvary. Humanity's desire for power. Our insatiable appetite for that which gives us the ability, the right, the means to rule over and subjugate and oppress and diminish another human being even to the point of death. Now here's the thing, power in and of itself is not the sin, it is what we choose to do with our power. God has bestowed us with the power to do the right thing in situations big and small, out in the world and in our homes, with our actions and our voice, but it is up to us on how we use that power. It is up to us on who benefits from that power. Do we use our power for ourselves to advance our own needs and wants and agendas in a world that already is the way it is? Or do we use our power to advance the needs and wants and agendas of those who are suffering, who are ignored, those who are oppressed, and in doing so, change the world as we know it to be better, more righteous, more just? I cannot tell you whether or not you have a problem with race. Only you can do that. But I can implore you to honestly ask yourself, have you ever looked away when you should have stood up? Have you chosen your comfort over the discomfort of another? Have you used your power, your privilege to better your life or the lives of those who are crying out to be seen, to be heard, to be valued the same way you would want to be valued? These are not easy questions to answer which is why we can't do it alone. Together, we can be better than we are on our own, but that too depends on us. Which leads me to my final question. Does the church have a race problem? Now, when I say the church, I'm not actually talking about the church universal or the denomination or even the idea of church. When I say church, I'm talking about us, local faith communities. Why this distinction? Because real transformation happens in community, in relationship, not anonymously attacking those we disagree with behind a screen, but sitting face to face with one another with humility and grace. As with most traumatic events, one of the first questions that we ask as people of faith is where is God in this? We survey the wreckage, we look for the helpers, and we try to find a glimmer of hope amidst the chaos. Oftentimes, we look to our community's leaders to bring us together. In the past few weeks, we have seen some of these leaders rise to the occasion for the good of the whole, while others have chosen to sow even more division and unrest, using their power to advance themselves. But when I read the work of black theologian James Cone, I realized that Jesus was not going to be found in some high place like a pulpit or a podium, but on the ground, 
with his face pressed into the pavement, gasping for air as he utters the words, I can't breathe. Cohn makes a connection between the cross that Christ was crucified on and the lynching trees that countless black Americans were hung on. He reminds us that the sins that put Jesus on the cross are not so different than the sins that tied a rope around their necks. Which means that it doesn't matter if we were there when it happened. It doesn't matter if we were the ones who drove that nail through his hands or put our knee on his neck. These sins that have claimed innocent lives are all of our problem, all of our burden to bear. McCone goes on to say that while both the cross and the lynching tree show us the worst that lies in our humanity, they also show us our refusal to let the worst in us have the final say. I see that refusal in you. I see that refusal in us. I see that refusal in this church. Week after week, we look to the cross, and together we confess our sins. We admit our imperfect participation in an imperfect world. We sit in the pews and in our homes, and we ask God, we beg God to help us be better, to be more faithful, and we mean it. I know that we do. But friends, the life and death of Jesus Christ, the lives and the deaths of our black brothers and sisters, demand that we do more than just confess. They demand that we as a church listen to the cries of those that are pouring out onto the streets, that we as a church acknowledge our role and participation in these unjust systems, that we as a church confess our sins and then go and sin no more. So how do we do that? Where do we even start? First, we have to acknowledge that there is so much work to be done in our world in our country, in our systems, in our cities, in our churches, in our homes. It is not going to be quick or painless. Yet no matter how overwhelmed we might feel, no matter how, no matter how daunting the task might be, we all have a role to play. We all have the power to make a difference. When I asked a dear friend of mine from seminary, a black pastor in Virginia, what kind of support would be meaningful to her right now, she said, Charlene, just talk about this in three weeks. When the headline changes and all of this stops, injustice will still be here. So that is exactly what we are going to do. On behalf of your clergy and staff, we are committing to continue this difficult and painful conversation three weeks from now, three months from now, for as long as it takes, and we want you to keep us accountable. Together, we are going to do the hard work of self-reflection and confession. We are going to amplify, seek out, and listen to voices of color that long to be heard, and we are going to do this as a community, as a family, as the church. But most importantly, as those whose lives have been forever changed by the gospel, we are going to shout out and not hold back anymore. We are going to lift up our voices like a trumpet, and we are going to loose the bonds of injustice, undo the thongs of the yoke to let the oppressed go free, and break every chain that binds. And if there are sides to choose, well, then we choose salvation and redemption, and equality, and love. Knowing that when we call, the Lord will answer. 
When God's people cry for help, God will answer and say, Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Friends, shout out and do not hold back. Lift up your voices like a trumpet and loose the bonds of injustice. Undo the thongs of the yoke and let the oppressed go free. Go out into the world and break every chain that binds. Knowing that when we call, our God hears us and will answer, Here I am. Here I am. May it be so. Amen.